Attention Greendale students and welcome to Streets Behind, a podcast about the TV show community. Hosted by two friends who met on campus but couldn't hang out during the pandemic. So we started this podcast to stay connected. And together we come up with so many insights about the show and the characters that we never would have thought of on our own. We know it's not perfect, but if it was, it wouldn't be Greendale. So join us. You're already already accepted. accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Ready? Ready. All right, welcome everybody to Streets Behind. It's about community, our fan pod for our beloved sitcom community. Today we are discussing Introduction to Statistics, which is the seventh episode of the first season. And with me as always is Sandy Caldrone. Hello, friend. Sandy, just a quick, what did you think about this episode? Oh, this episode is solid gold. I love like every moment of this episode. Nice, nice. Yeah, I felt like last week we had differing opinions. Not that it was like contentious, but that's why I wanted mm-hmm. to start here because I was, I was, now I'm going to be nervous coming into our recording every week. <laughs> like, oh, do we feel differently about this? <laughs> but I agree. This is a great episode for many reasons that we'll get into. So we'll sort of talk about three major plot points and then obviously dissect things that come out of that. But this week is interesting insofar as basically there's one major plot device, which is mm-hmm. Annie throwing the Dia de los Muertos party as part of a, I, I think she wants it to be like an extra credit opportunity or something like that for the Correct. Spanish class, right? Yes. But what that does is that then splinters into sort of these subplots that really become about character development. Mm-hmm. And so some, at least two of the major subplots are number one, Jeff's pursuit of Professor Slater. Professor Shortskirt, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, who called her that? Shirley. I think she's also Professor Slim Calves at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so there's, there's that, there's Jeff's pursuit of Professor Slater, but as we'll talk about, that really becomes a sort of character development piece for Jeff's relationship with the group and his responsibility towards the group or their need of his being like a responsible sort of leader. Mm-hmm. But then the aforementioned Shirley also has an interesting and kind of subtle plot here, which is her attempting to sabotage Professor Slater's personal (laughs) affects like her office or her car or whatever it is but that is clearly this like therapeutic mechanism for Shirley to deal with her husband having cheated on her with another woman and how that led to the destruction of their relationship but also then you assume some of these references to Shirley's or, or is maybe some of the origin of Shirley's sometimes violent temper or references to her drunken behavior that we've talked about in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a recap. You got the main plot point of the Dio de los Muertos party. And then that splinters into these subplots of, you know, Winger pursuing Slater and Shirley wanting to sabotage or otherwise assault Slater's personal belongings um, <laughs> and what that really says about them so, them as characters and how this, in, in my opinion anyway, really starts to signpost future character and plot developments in the show. And that's what mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting here. Yeah, I mean, we also have the undercurrent of Pierce being old, right? But like, we've yes. that's not new and that's not unique to this, this episode. Um, there's not as much revealed about Pierce as a character, but he accounts for a lot of the comedy. Yes, that's true. That's a great point. There is that in that um, that other subplot of Pierce's aging, and that becomes central. Uh, that's a great way to put it. That becomes central, really, to the comedy, to the, the physical comedy, some of the like direction or production decisions like the psychedelic moments or whatever and sort of the way they actually film the episode Mm -hmm. um but then there's also 
I mean, not to not to like you know get too fine grained, but you learn some things about Chang in this episode. Yeah. I mean, you learn some things about Starburns. You get development between Britta and Shirley and their relationship. You get development between Troy and Abed. You get some revelations about Annie and you know always kind of feeling like she wasn't cool and you know needing to sort of like be the center of attention or at least do something to like gain some street cred so it's a great episode in that way because again it's sort of this one main plot device but it gives you so much character stuff so Um, so much so i thought we would jump in with the main plot device i guess which is the dio de los muertos party and some of those more like smaller things we were talking about but let's say pierce and aging and Annie's need to sort of get like this street cred or be cool because that becomes the main engine for the show. Annie's throwing this, this party. It's something, you know, serves as some sort of extra credit for the people in the Spanish class. She wants Chang to be there. She definitely wants Jeff, you know, she wants everyone to be there. And Pierce comes dressed as the beast master, <laughs> which already ages him because nobody knows who the beast master is. But he has this moment where he has to go into the bathroom to take some pills that he has to take. And he's uh, hiding it, which is why he's in the bathroom. Yes, great. Yeah, exactly. This is something he doesn't want anything to know about. But Starburns comes out of the stall and sees it and they decide to trade some drugs. Um, yeah, trade- this is our first like appearance of Starburns as drug dealer, I think. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. This is like you get that sense because his name's Starburns and the way he looks. But this is the first like, oh, Starburns is like the guy that can hook you up with stuff or whatever. Like mm-hmm. he's into that. He, that's his sort of like underworld. And but then the switch that they make Pierce obviously takes something like ecstasy or like an actual drug. Mm -hmm. So it causes him to freak out. And that leads to a bunch of shenanigans, which need to be resolved by Jeff, who has gone into his subplot of chasing Professor Slater. Sort of general thoughts on that from you. I'm curious, just the the main plot device, um, how they sort of handled these different subplots in the episode, just sort of, you know, thousand foot view or whatever. Yeah, I think this is one of those episodes where like every kind of motion on screen, like every bit of dialogue really drives the bigger purpose of getting the story and the character development across. Like, I think this is one of those times where like there are no wasted jokes. Um, they hmm. all also move the story or tell you something about the characters. So um, it's kind of like, even though it only has one main story arc of this party, it's really jam packed. Like It's a really rich episode. It is so rich. And I wanted to ask you about that, too, because I know you had said that, you know, you thought this episode was gold. What were some of the things, I mean, just generally that, I mean, made you react to this episode in that way? Why did you feel like this was such a good episode? In this case, I think it is like a million tiny things that combine together to make the bigger whole. So it's hard to talk about it without mentioning small things. So like, yeah, yeah. for example, the episode begins with Chang explaining to the class that he is going to be forced to attend this extra credit event based on this obscure Greendale policy that no student has ever exercised. And like, while he's making this explanation, he says something about like, this is something I have to do in what would otherwise be my free time. And he goes to like make air quotes, but instead of just making air quotes, he's just like waggling his hands around. And like, I think that made me laugh out loud. And I think that's just like, one example of a tiny little thing that both is like unexpected and funny and kind of like tells you a little bit more about Chang. I think you're on to something here in that there's a lot of subtlety in this episode. And this is one of those episodes where you really see, I think, the genius and the subtlety of the writers, but also Dan Harmon. I mean, just their, as we've talked about, their vision for the show, like they've built the world. Mm-hmm. They know what happens in community. We still get things revealed to us. But this is a couple episodes of ours ago. You mentioned, you know, this the world building and how mm-hmm. it's clear that the writers, that there's this vision and they know like sort of the logic of Greendale, if you will. You know? <laughs> or um, the illogic of Greendale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The irrationality of Greendale. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like they see it all, but we're still learning this bit by bit, but it happens so seamlessly mm-hmm. that you have to just 
be sometimes honestly astonished. And so the last episode that we discussed, Football Feminism and You, as you know, I really loved it. I, would, I cracked mm-hmm. up, but there were so many, what I call haymakers. There were like big <laughs> sweeping, you know, uppercut, like, you know, the part I mentioned yeah. about Jeff and Troy on the football field. There's like these big jokes or this argument between, you know, Jeff and Annie. There were sort of these big moments. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, I think you're right. There's all these little subtle things. So another one is when Annie's trying to convince Jeff, because Jeff's the key here, right? Like they need Jeff to be there because that'll make it legitimate and like immediately cool and a place people want to go to this party. When Annie, you know, catches him in the hallway and is trying to get him to come, she says something like, I just want it to be an event where people don't tell me they have to be home in time for the news or whatever. (laughs) And you get this sense that she tried to like host things in high school, but you know, her fellow high school classmates would be like, I got to get home in time for the news, which is obviously such a like old person's thing to say. But I think but it's another one of those moments where you get like immediate or suddenly exasperated Annie, where she's like really animated and kind of, you know, revealing a lot <laughs> about who she is in this sort of like suddenly like very dramatic and, you know, like, you know, well, and she's, voice she's and, like, she's trying on this costume of being assertive. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and her way of doing it is to just, um, say the quiet part out loud and to say literally like, I am being assertive. I am raising my voice. (laughs) So like she has prepped, she has studied for this interaction, which is so Annie. And she is following the method of how one is assertive. (laughs) No, that's great. I forgot about that. And the other thing too, I was going to mention, you mentioned her knowing about this obscure Greendale policy. That's also so Annie. Because in future years, she becomes like, or future season, she becomes like part of these like committees and like, you know, like she, you know, has all the, um, like the three ring binders with all Mm -hmm. the, you know, where it's just like, well, no, technically this is like how we have to go about this or whatever. And that becomes so much a part of who she is, like navigating the bureaucratic specificities that nobody Mm -hmm. else has, even the Dean, like nobody else knows about this stuff, but Annie does. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. In a sense, the key word to this episode is subtlety because a lot of the jokes are subtle, but also to your Mm -hmm. point, they do so much to drive the character story forward. Mm -hmm. So we'll jump into one of those, you know, aforementioned character stories, which is Jeff pursuing his statistics professor, Professor Slater. Mm -hmm. So he goes up to her after class. He's clearly like trying to act like he's interested in class, goes up to her, tries to hit on her fails you know because she has this policy about not dating students but then effectively he just pursues that keeps trying to get her to go out with him Mm -hmm. and then reaches this point where he's got a bit of a dilemma he's planning on not going to Annie's party because you know he's too cool for it he's not going to go which then drives Annie to be like assertive and try to get him to come but then he finds out through Chang that Professor Slater is going to be at the faculty Halloween, which is how great is this? There's a faculty Halloween party right. on we campus. We work at a university. Alcohol. Like, yeah. this is not a thing that happens. Yeah. This isn't- <laughs> yeah. No, she's going to the secret faculty party where there's, you know, adult beverages or whatever. Yeah, this so only fi- happens at Greendale. Exactly. So he finds out that that's what Slater's plans are. You know, eventually he acquiesces to go for Annie's sake, but then he figures out at the party from Chang that Slater's at the faculty party asked Chang if he can be his plus one to the faculty party. (laughs) And so then you get that like division, that fracture in the plot where now Jeff is leaving the party. Things are starting to unravel at the party, including Pierce's trip. And then, you know, he effectively steps it up a notch or three or four or five creepy notches (laughs) uh, in his pursuit for (laughs) Professor Slater. Um, Well, and what's... (laughs) What's also isn't said, but is kind of there in a hilarious absence is that like, you really need to be somebody's plus one to get into the cafeteria to go to this party. I know. That's what I love about Is there a bouncer? (laughs) That's what I love about like the subtleties, like Chang, I need you to make make me your plus one or whatever. And it's just like, do you think they even really got like little cards that say you and a guest? Right. Yeah. Plus one. I love it. But and so, I guess like, so I won't defend Jeff very often. But I guess like in defense of Jeff, 
Slater has really, she's given him the green light to assert, yes. to continue pursuing her, even though she has said that she has this rule that she, she doesn't want to break. So she's been very honest about saying like, yes, I am attracted to you, but I have this rule. And, and this feels like, I have to tell you, like, this feels like a very weird thing to be saying as someone who's been so feminist for her entire life. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, I really think that's what's happening. Yeah. No, please, please. This is this is therapy for all of us. No, <laughs> um, let's get to the bottom of your now confused feminism. No, I'm kidding. Um, but no, I know what you mean. It, it's not clearly she is giving him the green light because at one point when he's mentioning all the things to distinguish him as being older than most students, like no, I'm actually in your age bracket. He talks about like his receding gums and all these, and she has a line like. Um, it's uncanny how many of my boxes you are checking or whatever like and so it's clear she's giving him the green light I also think there's part of this and maybe I'm overreading this but she's a statistics professor I think there's this part of her that's like this is about like trial and error and like uh, it's almost her subtle way of being like if you just try x number of times eventually this is going to work but there's also too just like the you know romantic chase cat and mouse of it she's clearly yes giving him the green light and in, in a genuine way but it's like she just needs him to play the right card or say the right thing because yeah. as she said she's you know a couple times she's like yeah now you or I forget what his line was but he says something out loud and she's like yeah now you kind of ruined it or whatever I mean she's clearly oh he asked like, how he was doing yeah. yes of course and she's like yeah pretty you know she's like yeah pretty good until or whatever pretty well until you were yeah asked about how you were doing so there's a lot of that cat and mouse or whatever that repartee between them that it's clear she's attracted to but it's just like they got to find the right way to walk that line of teacher student well and I think how they do that is that although Jeff is the one in the in pursuit she's the one with all the power in this relationship yes and I think your comment about her being a statistics professor, just kind of like running the numbers, might be digging a little too deep, but I am on board with that. <laughs> I, yeah, I th it's true. It probably is. But I think there is, I, I do think there's a part of her that's sort of like, if you just keep giving it a shot and don't shoot yourself in the foot, like asking how you're doing, you know, there, there, <laughs> there at least seems to be that, as you say, there's that part of her that isn't completely shutting it down she's keeping the door open or the invitation open. And mm -hmm. it's just about Jeff finding like the right combination, which mm -hmm. he eventually does through the <laughs> wisdom of Chang. So when they leave to go to the, to the, you know, when he, when Chang takes him on his scooter, all of like half a block to the other side of campus to the, you know, yeah, the a very weird move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But a good excuse to get Jeff and Chang on a moped together. Exactly. And to see more of <laughs> Chang's kind of sad life. Um, While he's dressed as a matador. And he's, he's this adorable little matador. <laughs> oh my God. I forgot about that. Yeah. The, um, so they, they show up and Jeff, you know, immediately is just like, whatever he's dressed as a cowboy there's some jokes about how he has like sexy cowboy like um whatever costume just ready to go you know well, he come... right because he wasn't wearing a costume to annie's party exactly so he somehow got a last minute exactly. cowboy outfit for the faculty party and that's suspicious yeah so he comes in all well all guns blazing as they say he's, he's dressed <laughs> as a cowboy to pursue slater and a couple swings and misses and then eventually Chang whispers in his ear like and gives him this speech which I actually thought was like a good speech and sort of a very like mm -hmm. honest and revealing speech where he's just like in a nutshell look guys like you that are cool and hip and like good looking like you know you just don't get it but like have you ever just effectively what he says is have you ever just tried to be like honest and real with her and so yeah Jeff have does. you tried begging yeah basically have yeah exactly <laughs> And so Jeff does, she's sitting up by herself off to the side and Jeff just walks up and is just like, look, it's been a while since I've hooked up with anybody. Like, I'm super attracted to you. Like, please, you know, yeah. basically, at which point she's like, all right, stay three steps behind, like gives him the rules for walking out together. So, okay, 
why is this all important? I think for our conversation. So one, you see that Jeff is still motivated by women. Like this is still one of, I think the kind of tacky parts of his character early in the show. Mm. Like, you know, he wants to hook up with Britta. He wants to like Jeff's, uh, Jeff is like this sex craved, whatever, you know, like he, you know, that's, that's Jeff. He's like the good looking former lawyer. Who's like, you know, looking he's playing this time. part. He's playing this part, but then it reveals something so much more interesting and deeper that becomes a big part of the show and of Jeff's character during his time in the faculty party different like basically the whole group at one point assembles and is like you got to come get Pierce Pierce is freaking out and we'll kind of step you know we'll get back to that in a little bit but so Pierce is having this bad trip or whatever and he's ruining Annie's party and he keeps trying to like brush them off and it's interrupting his conversations with Slater. It's kind of been the reason that a couple of his attempts at this point have failed, mm -hmm. you know, but so finally he gets it to work. They're leaving. They have to walk by the library apparently, which, sure. <laughs> yeah. So they walk by the library and Troy comes out and is like, Jeff, you like, oh good, you're here to save the day. You know, Pierce is underneath a stack of tables and chairs <laughs> that he's built like a fortress out of and he's freaking out in there or whatever. And then, you know, there's this moment where Jeff has to decide, is he gonna go in and help Pierce and ultimately like help the group? Or is he gonna diss him and like go home with Slater? And he mm -hmm. decides to stay and help the group. And one of the things Slater really brings to this episode is she has all this dialogue that calls out like, what is it with you and these people? And what is it with them and their neediness of <laughs> you? Yeah, we don't often get a comment from an outsider about the group, which is like, it's a weird dynamic. And it's funny when outsiders can point that out. <laughs> It is. And the only thing that we've gotten really to this point, although we'll start to get comments from as the series goes on from the campus community about the group, mm -hmm. and there will be foils to them as a group, namely the uh, the exchange students who love <laughs> yeah. foosball or whatever, the German exchange <laughs> students. But you're right. At this point, no one's really sort of called out the group dynamic from the outside. What this really does for Jeff's character is it presents him with this codependency that I think he has with the group so as much as he's like oh this group like they're always getting in my way and otherwise I'd still be cool Jeff Winger but here I am at Greendale or whatever how did I end up here it's another sort of place where he questions how we ended up here but I think there's this other layer to it where he, whether or not he realizes it, makes a move that suggests he is as needy of them and their acceptance and maybe their need of him as like the leader um, as he is of them being much mm -hmm. more overtly like we need someone to be the leader of the group. Yeah, I think that that tracks, especially kind of knowing where Jeff is going to go throughout the rest of, of the series, and that uh, maybe he'd like to view this as himself being responsible and making sacrifices for the group, but I think that you're right, that he actually really wants them to need him. And it's interesting, because I know you and I had talked off mic a little bit about this sort of like uh, responsibility, dependency, kind of two sides mm -hmm. of the coin or whatever. But I was curious to hear um, what you thought was revealed in that moment where he kind of looks at Slater and is like, sorry, I got to stay here and, and, and help the group. I got to go crawl under this table and talk to the Beastmaster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I was curious to hear how you sort of, I mean, I know you just mentioned it a little bit there, but how you put it into not just sort of the larger like series and character arc, but, you know, this moment of where we're at in the show or in the series, you know, up to episode seven. Well, I think at this point, like Jeff has kind of been cast as like the dad in the group a little yeah. bit already. But I think this is the first time he actually like takes responsibility and his actions actually kind of match that, yeah. you know, that, that joking classification of him as, as the dad. And it's, it's still like uh, self-serving, right? Because he gets to be a hero. Um, yeah. Even though he gives up his night with Slater, he gets credit for being the hero of the party. Um, so he, this is not uh, <laughs> this is not a story of like Jeff's selfless redemption by any stretch. Yeah, yeah. But that's what's interesting to me is I think you're so right, and that and it is 
maybe the first moment where he seems to some extent willingly take responsibility and make a small superficial sacrifice of not being able to go home with Slater. But you're right. It's, I mean, that's, what's so interesting is it's you is, and so rich is it's like, it's about more than him taking responsibility in this selfless, in this selfless way, because he's not even doing it to like gain favor with Slater. It's not like he's like, oh, this is the thing that'll get her to like be attracted to me. She's already attracted to him. I mean, there's definitely this part of him that is, and I think it also speaks to his slowly becoming somewhat comfortable with the fact that he is at Greendale. Although that's a tension with his character the whole time. Like, why am I still at Greendale? Or why am I in Greendale at all? But yeah, it's that interesting moment where it's like he I do think he of his own volition, as it were, takes responsibility for the moment and wants to go help the group and wants to like, you know, not have Annie's party ruined. But it's so from that, like, but they all need me and I need to Mm -hmm. be needed. (laughs) And that's a I mean, that's an interesting thing. And I will say this. I mean, I know sometimes we talk about kind of our own lives or like our experiences, though. I mean, not to go like off, you know off on a tangent I won't be too specific but if you've ever been in a relationship where there's like an unhealthy codependence (laughs) then you know like finally a decade later where you're able to like look back on it you're just like yeah probably should have gotten out of that relationship a lot sooner probably never (laughs) should have gone to where it did certainly shouldn't have lived together you know you're just like um yeah but that's the thing about these sort of codependent relationships is that line gets really blurry sometimes of where it's you doing what you think is like you know the ethically right thing to do for the other person but you also just needing to be needed in that role of Mm. being like the savior of the night in this in this instance Mm -hmm. so that was one of those things that 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 has the ring of truth to it yeah 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 you mean just in terms of the show in general Mm -hmm. like in there yeah I thought so too that was like for me a big moment for Jeff's character and just an interesting moment in the show so the other subplot we talked about was uh, actually really quick though before we talk about Shirley let me just say this what becomes one of the best parts of the show for me is that Jeff goes in to try to try to save the day but the fortress starts to collapse and who ultimately (laughs) saves the day but is Abed Batman and I have to say this was one of the like laugh out loud moments for the show for me the over dramatization of the tables and chairs collapsing oh yeah with like the sound effect it's it's really fake compared to reality, but it would fit in a Batman movie. But this is what I love. Do you remember there's an episode, uh, maybe season two or three, it's coming up and obviously we'll get there, where there's a model car. There's like a model village with a model car, like an electric model car. Oh, one of their dioramas? It's I, it's like a diorama, but I can't, I think it is. I can't actually remember why they built it, but yeah. So it's one of these like models they built, and there's a toy car, like an electric car, on it, mm. and the car <laughs> explodes because when they go to turn it on, somebody's like rigged an ignition bomb on this car for conspiratorial and, reasons. Yes. Yeah, and they do this like close up, slow down, <laughs> like the car exploding, and I think Jeff even like goes to cover Annie. It's mm-hmm. like it's a toy car. It's like, you know, this. And I think it or... makes like a spark as big as like one of those old like wind up Godzilla toys that would like spark. Ah! <laughs> a great poll. Yeah, exactly. In and fact, but, that might be how they did it. <laughs> but it's so over dramatized. Yeah. And I thought that this was one of the early instances in this show of like, we know this is corny. We know this is stupid, but they're so good at being like, we're making this allusion to like, you know, Batman movies where there's like some moment where Batman has to save you and there's like some collapsing building and it's yeah. tables and chairs in the library. You know, <laughs> but I thought that was great. I thought that was really well done. And so ultimately though, I thought it was interesting from the character perspective that Jeff goes to be the savior, but actually he's not. They need Abed yeah. as Batman to like be the savior, which I thought was another kind of cool move from the show to be like, here, you're going to get Jeff's speech but actually this time Abed's got to come through in character, you know, as Batman. Yeah. I did enjoy that Jeff's take on Pierce's wild behavior 
that he's really just like living his life because Jeff has tried to fake living his life, right? Like he's built up this fake persona. He doesn't have real human connections with people before he comes to Greendale. And he's what, like 40? And he's been kind of faking it this whole time. Whereas Pierce, who is this, you know, doofus who can't seem to do anything right, at least is genuine. And at least he's sincere. He's trying, he's trying his best. And Jeff kind of gives him credit for that, that like, that's the point of, of living. And you definitely don't need to worry about being old because you have had more experience than pretty much anybody. And I thought that was really nice. I love how like Pierce gives the show these opportunities to have really like poignant life lesson moments that aren't saccharine. It's a great point because we mentioned one of these in like the second or third episode of the show where Pierce has one of those moments with Jeff. I think they're sitting on the steps of the library. They maybe like take a sip of alcohol or something if I recall, but there's this, you know, he's done this before where he has these sort of wisdom moments. Yeah. And I think you're right that as troubling as Pierce's character is with the racism and the sexism and all the other things, all the other prejudices, and we've talked about this before in our pod, there is a way that sometimes he really is the voice of wisdom and perspective in the show. And Mm -hmm. I like that you mentioned that because it's true, Jeff's sort of final speech before they need Batman to save them (laughs) is this commentary on age. And it's interesting because Jeff's age is something he tries to highlight with Slater. Like, I'm not a kid, I'm your age, we can't date. But you're right, I think Jeff at this point in the show is probably mid to late 30s because his 40th birthday will come up in one of the later episodes where it's like an existential crisis for him. By the way, we could record an entire other podcast about the existential crisis I had when I was turning 40. (laughs) I think I talked to you about that a lot. Um, But, you know, Pierce is in his 60s, you assume, so like 25 years older. And yeah, I do like the way you you framed that. I hadn't thought about that, but in a way, that's Jeff's point is while he's giving the like wise winger, you know, end of show speech, his point is really... Pierce, people can make fun of you for being old, but you have lived more life than them. And Mm -hmm. in some ways, there is a wisdom to what you do, even if it's this like, you're kind of a bumbling idiot about a lot of this stuff, but you don't care. You're you're like, you lean in on it. You're That doesn't stop him. Exactly. He does care, but it doesn't prevent him from trying. Good point. I should, yes, good point. Let me correct that. He does care because he obviously cares what everybody else thinks. He, do, he doesn't care so much that it paralyzes his attempts to be cool and to do these things mm-hmm. and to fit in and to be like one of the young green Dalians or whatever. He, Pierce, I mean, there is this sense that I think Jeff is giving him, and I think this is part of what you're saying, where it's like, you just manifest a certain wisdom that all other people don't have because you've lived a life and you've lived so much life now that like, whatever, man, you're just going to do this stuff. (laughs) Like, like it doesn't, you know, like you don't have shame in a sense anymore because you've lived your life. It's interesting the way age becomes a lot a part of the show or age differences between Mm -hmm. the characters and their different perspectives on things. And though, yes, Pierce is problematic and he's sort of like the bigoted older white man or whatever. And in no way am I excusing that. I think it's great that the show actually is so like, here's who Pierce is he's this problematic character Pierce let's discuss this creepiness yeah (laughs) exactly nice but there is this part of him in the show where they do come back to like but there's something to be said for people who have lived this much life and I think in a way it's a nod to the show or the show makes to like our tendency to forget older people and the fact that they just have experience and they're a wealth of information and knowledge hopefully and I think there is some of that that comes out in this, like, but Pierce, like, there's something that is inherently valuable about just being older than people. It means you've done more life. And I think the other kind of thing that Jeff points out in his, in his winger speech here is that Pierce's life isn't over. It's not like he had his experiences and now they've turned into wisdom. He is still doing new weird shit constantly, like dressing up as Beastmaster and having a bad trip at a community college. Like, yeah, it's a full life. Yeah. And let me just say now, like, like, 
Yeah, exactly. If in 25 years I'm dressed as He-Man or whatever, like my <laughs> our generation's equivalent, you know what I mean? I'm dressed as Luke Skywalker. <laughs> yeah, tripping balls at like a Halloween party at a community college. Like yeah. I have, I have lived. <laughs> um, but so then the other main kind of plot point we were going to talk about was Shirley. And yeah. her need to sabotage, in a sense, Winger's attempt to hook up with Slater because she feels like that's somehow interfering with the, you know, two, two cute white people should just be together, yeah. Britta and, and uh, Winger. And she's kind of, you know, maybe has this sense, like, I think, Britta, you do like Jeff or whatever. I mean, some of that's kind of being implied here. So there is, on the surface, some, like, I want to thwart uh, Slater's attempts or Slater's potential to hook up with Jeff and I want to thwart Jeff's attempts to hook up with her for the sake of Britta but what we realize it is all about is her reaction to some woman stealing somebody else's man and in this sense it's specifically the fact that she feels someone stole her man mm -hmm. but really she feels like her ex-husband Andre leaving her for a younger woman has been in a sense what put her at Greendale mm -hmm. but what has been a, like destructive to her life or at least the idyllic life of being like the married mother of two yeah and so we get a whole other series of revelations to that in these very funny and comedic, but also very honest and real moments where Shirley is trying to destroy some of Slater's physical property or hatching up schemes to do that. And Britta has to sort of talk her down from it. <laughs> yeah, because Shirley has, like you said, with Jeff and Britta, Shirley has this idea of how things should be. Jeff and Britta should be together. She should be with her husband and their kids. That's how things should be. And none of that is actually happening. And even though Jeff is the one pursuing Slater, Shirley blames Slater for pursuing Jeff and taking him away from Britta, someone who doesn't even have him in the first place. But yeah, you're right. I think that, so the way I've described it sounds really like tragic and serious, but the way that it comes out in the show is these like, not very wordy, but like very pithy, really funny <laughs> lines from Shirley, where she's just kind of like ranting. Like at one point she's talking about like some like Katherine Heigl movie poster that like resonated with her. And that's um, not explained at all, but you can tell that like, this is tapping into something deep and resonant in Shirley. And she eventually kind of talks herself down in the middle of a rant where she's about to, uh, she's brought a garden hose into Slater's office and she wants to turn it on and soak her desk. And then she realizes, oh no, this isn't about her at all. This is about me. So I love that it's, it's, they do it in such a funny way. And I really like that Shirley's the one who comes to the realization. And isn't it something about her, like the dialogue, she says something about a bank teller who I think has a weave. Am I recalling this correctly? I don't remember a bank teller thing, but yes, the, we, the weave having was definitely part of, of her rant. So, but yeah, yeah. So for some reason, I thought she said bank teller. She may have, yeah. And I'm sorry. But like, I, she's kind of ranting about Slater and then when she starts to talk about physical appearance appearances it becomes yes. clear that this is not about yes, Slater. Yes, yes that was thank you that was my point was she in this rant as she's trying to like flood you know Slater's desk or her office with this garden hose that she's like brought through a window or whatever <laughs> uh, which also where was the garden hose connected <laughs> it's just like one of those great community mo like what there's the, okay yeah. there's the garden hose um but I get yes so that was my point is that what she starts to do is physically describe the woman that Andre has had yeah. the, the affair with. And that's like you said, where the genius of the right, where it's suddenly she's saying this all out loud and she's like, oh, wait, not about Slater and Jeff or Britta's potential to be with Jeff. Still very upset about my husband leaving me for this person. And what's so funny about it is she says like, I have to confess something. <laughs> Oh, come on. Surely everybody knows what this is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I got to confess. No, it's great. And the other thing I wrote down here, I wrote, 
Britta and Shirley are amazing, exclamation point. Their on-screen chemistry is so, like, they're such good actors. Like, this is a really great scene Mm -hmm. where they both bring, like, a level of drama to this that I don't know that the yeah. rest of the cast necessarily has. Like, And that... if I might quickly add, yes, please. while Britta is dressed as a squirrel. <laughs> and I think she's still carrying like the yeah, acorn. Yeah, she's got like the right? acorn. She's yes. got like a prop. But we yeah. should also say Shirley's dressed as... <laughs> Shirley's dressed as Harry Potter and she's doing like earlier in the show doing a terrible British accent but everybody thinks she's Urkel so there's like another one of those moments with the show where they're you know walking that line of like racist jokes but in a way that seems I mean I'm not going to excuse it but it's like it's almost so obvious that that's what everybody would think um but so yes to your point there's already the comedy of like Shirley's like banging around in the office. She's brought, he knocks things over, bringing the garden, the magically appearing garden hose through the window. And, you know, and really good physical comedy. Great physical comedy. Britta's dressed as the squirrel carrying an acorn. And it's just like Shirley's revelation. So that whole part where she's talking about the woman who, that her husband, her ex husband, Andre, had the affair with. I wrote down another vicious line from Shirley and that was what we were talking about a minute ago where she's describing her because she gets so charged all of a sudden and Mm -hmm. there's like a clear like violent or a desire to commit violence against Mm -hmm. that person which you know goes back to like smashing someone's head in the jukebox or whatever that (laughs) line we talked about a few episodes ago so I just wrote another vicious line from Shirley part of the reason I bring this up because sidebar it took me a very long time how to figure out how to spell the word vicious and so (laughs) I say this because as people who you you know work at a university have worked in libraries uh, I'm sure we love language and love reading I don't know if you've ever had this moment but when's the last time you sat down and looked at a word and had to like cross it out three or four times and you're like yeah I'm pretty sure that's not how you spell vicious just wanted to share that with you and uh, the listeners out there vicious was very hard for me to spell yeah I'm sure you went to viscous at some point well, <laughs> funny you should say that because the first thing I wrote down was another viscous line from Shirley. So, yes, <laughs> yes, well done, Sandy. That was my first iteration of trying to spell vicious. Um, but, but I guess the point for us here is that, yeah, it's another one of those moments where you see this violence that she has pent up. And to your point, which I love is a great point, but she gets herself through it in this instance. Yeah. She mm-hmm. has this catharsis of like, wait a minute. Saying about Jeff or Slater and <laughs> Britt in that triangle. It was about me. And yeah, I gotta <laughs> I gotta confess something. <laughs> like, oh really? <laughs> you know, yeah, you got something you gotta tell me, surely. Yeah. <laughs> Not about Jeff or whatever. Yeah. You don't say. <laughs> yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to mention on these any of these plot points? Anything you felt like we missed? Um, no, I feel like as we usually do, like I wouldn't have thought of any of these things on my own, but as we talk about it, so much more comes out. But like one thing we haven't talked about yet is how funny Annie is in this episode. Oh yes, yes, please. So another one of those like little moments that like rang really true for me is like at the beginning of the Dia de los Muertos party. And I love, like Annie says it, like she over pronounces it every time and it's so funny. But at the beginning of her party, Britta shows up as a squirrel. It's like a very, it's like a big mascot costume almost. Like, yep. it is, yeah, she's got no shape or figure at all in this in this squirrel costume. And Britta makes a comment to Annie about how she hates it that that women use Halloween as an excuse to dress slutty. And then Annie agrees and then takes off her cape and is wearing like a skeleton painted bodysuit. And that's both of those things feel very real to me <laughs> the complaint about people you know dressing up to like draw attention to their their physical self uh, agreeing with that and then also doing it <laughs> I mean there is so much to be said about the Halloween phenomena in life in 21st century society but I did think this was great first of all Yes, the way Annie takes off the cape, but then does this like little kind of boppy strut where she That's like perfect. walks up to the front yeah. of the room and be like, hey, everybody, announce it. <laughs> I just, but there's also, I, look, I'm speaking about this, obviously, as 
well, maybe not obviously, people don't know me, but like <laughs> as a cisgender male and a heterosexual, I, uh, you know, I realize I may be, I, I, I don't mean to comment where my comment is not welcome, but there seems to be a real, as you said, sort of like bifurcation or like kind of two camps where in one way, when I saw that or heard that dialogue, I thought, I get where Brit is coming from. Why do women use this as an excuse to make themselves sexual objects or sexually enticing or sexually attractive to men? Like, why is it overtly sexualized? But then I think there's also this part where, you know, if you go out for Halloween, a lot of people are dressed as something that they want to be. There's like a deep psychology going on here. And part of that is I get to be in character tonight. And maybe what I want to do is be someone who has like slightly different values, let's say, than the person I normally would. But also just because you dress like that doesn't mean that you are like sexual fodder for the men out there or women or whatever. You know, I mean, so there is this kind of interesting like Annie being like, no, I'm wearing this like skin suit and I'm flaunting my body. But that doesn't mean like I'm here to hook up. Up. like I'm just dressed this way because it's Halloween um, I'm curious what you think about that because I sort of as I mean you sort of alluded to it just then but I sort of saw that as like oh I'm sure you know there are like these two perspectives on it there's the, and and not even necessarily just about how women dress but I mean Halloween in general like there's the Halloween that has become overtly drunken and sexualized but then there's this like we live in a repressed Western society where maybe you do need that one night a year just to be like, I mean, that's what happens in ancient cultures, right? There's these like these nights of revelry and debauchery, these like, you know, Dionysian festivals where it's like, yeah, I think we all just need to get drunk and let things happen. Um, and I think Halloween in some way like actually pulls that thread into contemporary society in this way that is really weird there's the like i met an age where i'm like god it's just so stupid and drunken and it's not even about like kids getting candy it's about people going out to hook up but then there's this other part i mean it's like for a lot of people that's probably like a really healthy thing maybe yeah i mean i, I think like to encapsulate it i would kind of like circle back to your your initial question which was like britta asking you know why does this have to be an excuse to become a sexual object and then the other side of that coin is why not yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, what's the difference? Um, did you have a favorite part before we before we get to the coda? Did you have a favorite part of the episode? Was there something about this episode that? Yeah, this is really a difficult choice. Okay, but I like doing it before the coda because that kind of means I'm like I don't have to pick the coda, which is awesome. Yes, <laughs> yes. But oh, this is really hard. I am having a hard time deciding between um, Annie being a dancing skeleton, um, Pierce meowing at random faculty members. But I think what I have to actually pick is Chang when he is giving Jeff his, his pep talk and his strategy talk on, on dating and getting women. <laughs> he he makes a comment that like if he had what jeff is working with like this would be no problem for him because he says that he has the body of a fifth grader <laughs> nice Ch I, have to, I have to add one thing too because chang has some great lines but early in the episode he, um he says are you saying that my people are sneaky <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> he's got some great lines in this but no i love i love that i forgot yeah that's a, that oh. is a great line there's one more, God, okay, so it has to be a Chang moment, but it would either be, look at me, I have the body of a fifth grader, or there's also this moment where the gang, Jeff and Slater and the gang are kind of outside the library um, while they're trying to lure Jeff into the library to help, and Chang drives by on his moped in the background and yells loser at Jeff. Uh, yeah, yeah. As you said, he's dressed as a matador. He's like, so at, yeah, at this Halloween party, you know, in the library. Like, in a way, he feels like he's not even quite cool enough to be at the at the faculty, you know, party. But he's going, in, but he's on his moped. No, it's great. So for me, I think my favorite aspect of the show, and maybe it sort of goes into the like Abed saving the day. But when I rewatch this. I remembered a feeling I had the very first time I watched it when it was like originally, you know, on air. And that is, I realized that this show for all their allusions to 
and meta references to pop culture and movies or the John Hughes and the 80s kind of high school films we've talked about along the way up to this point. Uh, what I love about this episode, and again, I felt that way from the beginning, is this is a appropriately seasonally or uh, holiday themed episode. And it just reminds me of watching shows as a kid where you get the Halloween episode or the Christmas episode, the Thanksgiving episode, or school uh, shows about kids in school and you get the like last day of school episode. Like mm -hmm. I loved that this was like an allusion to those old, or not old, but you know, those like classic American sitcoms or TV shows that have the seasonally appropriate episode. And I remember again, feeling this way when I first saw it and it only re was reinforced when I, you know, rewatched it the other day. It's one of those things I love about this show. They are TV nerds. Like they love them some TV. <laughs> like <laughs> they love these sorts of things. And as much as they make fun of a lot of that stuff, um, they also are like proudly like, hey, we're an American sitcom and this is like a tradition as old as like American sitcoms themselves. You have to have the seasonally appropriate or holiday themed episode. No, you do get the feeling that like while they often kind of like we've said, like play with your expectations and mock some of the, the common like pop culture reference points that we all have, like you get the sense that they're like, oh, no, no, we're part of this group. We are making fun of our own. We are not outsiders you know making fun here poking Exa fun here yeah no exactly and that, sorry but like no this is us this is where we belong and it's okay for us to make fun of our family yeah yeah and that's what i love about it they're like no we're tv nerds and we're tv writers and we're, we've made fun of a lot of this stuff and we know but we're going to be like super on the nose about this at the end with abed's speech where he's like doing this like you know <laughs> he's got the batman voice going he's giving this like batman speech as he's standing on the roof but he finishes it with happy halloween and i just mm -hmm. thought that's like such a great you know what i mean it's just like such a great way to punctuate it or whatever it's just like yeah this is a halloween episode so there's all this which is makes this episode all the more like important to me because it's not only signposting all this character development but it signposts that this show is going to do these things. And there will be certain episodes that come up in the future, as you had mentioned it off mic, specialty episode or yeah. special episodes. There's going to be Christmas themed episodes, or there's going to be episodes that are like really in that, like this is a special episode that is meant to sort of, in a sense, not be completely removed from the community universe, but be recognized as such. Like this kind mm -hmm. of, you know, you can put this one in brackets because this is the Halloween episode and there will be future Halloween episodes, one of which yeah. leads to some very interesting plot and character <laughs> developments, but there will be future Halloween episodes. And I love that that this show is like all in on that like no you got to do a halloween episode the simpsons is like probably the yeah you know paradigm for halloween episodes right and it's like yeah like you said there's no shame in that this is this is us this is our family like you know we can be self-deprecating in this way but also we're owning it like we're doing a halloween episode and i love that i think it was one of the first times watching the show when it first you know was airing that i realized yeah, there's something special and very classic. There's something really deeply rooted in like classic sitcoms, American sitcoms about this show that I love. Well, and uh, that too, like that has to happen in the broadcast era, right? Because it's this show is broadcast around Halloween. If you have like a streaming show where the whole season is released at once, that, that doesn't have the same meaning. And like growing up watching these shows, like you remember, like they would hype the special episode yes. for weeks and you'd see like special different commercials yeah. about those holiday episodes yes and it was like a, a way for you to connect with these characters because hey you're on the same calendar at least no that's the thing i love it and i'm glad you brought that up because you would get the whole build up to like yeah. this week is the halloween episode or whatever and it was always like calendar appropriate you know it'd be like october 29th or whatever and you're getting like the halloween episode and you're kind of in a halloweeny mood especially mm -hmm. like as a kid or whatever i mean it's just but also it's a great point and i hadn't thought about this but remember we're broadcasting like you know during a pandemic maybe towards the end of the pandemic now as we record this episode reflecting on a show that first aired 12 years ago that was appointment tv it was on like must see tv you know thursday mm -hmm. night it was on once a week 
and you had to wait for it to come out. It's just not like, here's 20 episodes, go binge them tomorrow. And to your point, I never thought about that, like seasonally appropriate episodes for a show you binge that has a one day release, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. In fact, you expect those shows to only take like three days of real time or whatever, <laughs> like in their story arc, because you're like, why would 10 episodes take 10 months or whatever it is? <laughs> um, all right, you ready for the coda? Yeah. I'll, I'll let you I'll let you take it away if I were better at a Batman voice I would do this <laughs> uh, entire conversation in a Batman fair. voice like <laughs> Troy and Abed do but um <laughs> yeah so here we have Troy and Abed have found this kind of like quiet moment during or after the party where there's they're in their costumes and we haven't really talked about Troy in this episode but he's in right. the Michael Jackson thriller red outfit costume <laughs> and he's really just like in love with his own looks this episode I think at one point he's just like dancing with a hand mirror looking at himself so like he doesn't have a lot of lines but he's very very funny um, with what he does have so yeah so you have Batman and Michael Jackson sitting down in the library together eating candy corn which you know ubiquitous candy that like has anyone ever liked candy corn uh, yeah, but talking exactly. about how it looks like <laughs> tiny traffic cones and that leads them down this wonderful little imaginative lane where they talk about like you know what they would do if they woke up as a cookie or a donut or candy in this in this imaginary realm where candy corn is a traffic cone <laughs> You're right, we didn't talk about Troy because there's a great part earlier where he's asking Batman if he's attractive. Yeah. <laughs> and Abed's just doing the Batman voice. But no, it's a great coda because it's obviously silly and it must have been hard to do because like it must be hard on your voice. I and think like so. and you know, Troy at first doesn't have it. And like, you know, Abed's like, no, that's not Batman. And then he gets it and he's like, Yeah, that's Batman. And then they have this conversation. <laughs> but they start talking about kind of like real stuff. And then I think they end with something like, It's cool to talk to somebody else about this stuff. Mm -hmm. But they're doing it like in that voice. So it's like so sweet that they have each other and they can be comfortable talking about this silly stuff, but they still have to do it like through a voice. They don't make like the full emotional connection. You know, there's gotta be, there's gotta be this mm -hmm. intermediary, which is doing it through the Batman voice which I thought was like cool and you know having grown up a guy with a lot of guy friends I feel like that's a real moment in like you know your life and mm -hmm. a friendship with another guy where you're like you realize you have like kind of dorky stuff you're into and like they're one of the few people you can talk about but you kind of do it in this adolescent way where there's still a like yeah but whatever that stuff's dumb you know like <laughs> it, it just, there's a time in your life as a guy growing up with like your male friends where it takes a while but there that at least for me was one of those moments where I kind of it resonated with me being like a guy like oh yeah like it's kind of funny that they're getting to know each other but there's got to be this intermediary of like but we're doing it through this voice so it's not also Troy had a great line when he says to Pierce you you have a full-on erection oh my god so funny yeah, full -on erection. <laughs> wait can I say this real quick and this is a genuine question because I struggled with this mm. is it Michael Jackson from Thriller or Eddie oh, Murphy no. from Raw you're right it is Eddie Murphy and now okay. I feel bad for getting that wrong no no that's okay I'm conflating that with my memories of my own brother dressing as Michael Jackson from Thriller with the red jumpsuit <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> he had a little red, yeah, a little red Michael Jackson costume. Seriously? <laughs> that is amazing. That is amazing. How old were you guys? Um, well, Thriller was still relevant, so it was yeah, sometime yeah. in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, yeah, so like, I mean, you were little kids. This was like, yes, yeah, oh yes. my God, that's amazing. But another thing I want to say, though, is like, they never mentioned that. So like, Shirley gets the like, oh, you must be Urkel. And it's like, no, I'm Harry Potter, right? But like, mm -hmm. everybody else's outfit or costume gets like explicitly mentioned. I thought it was weird that like, Troy's never gets mentioned. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, at first I couldn't figure out who it was, but then when they did like a pan out and you saw the whole thing and he's carrying the microphone, I'm like, oh, yes. I think it's supposed to be Eddie Murphy from Raw. You're <laughs> but nobody totally ever right. says yeah. anything about it. Anyway, um, all right. So we will be back. I think our next episode, if I'm not mistaken, is midterm exams. So if you've been listening to the show, we're going to, as we were just talking about shows that kind of mimic seasons, we're kind of going to mimic an academic calendar. Basically, this is based on the fact that I am watching these off of DVDs. So that tells you something. Um, but the first <laughs> disc of the DVD has seven episodes. And so here we are um, at the end of that first DVD, but we thought it'd be a good time to take like a midterm break. So 
I call them midterm exams or midterm break, fall break. Well, I'm sure we'll come up with the actual title, but the next episode is just going to sort of be a reflection where we'll step back and not actually look at a specific episode of the show. And then after that, we'll be back with episode eight, which I cannot remember which episode that is. But so, yeah, we'll be back soon enough with, um, I guess, sort of a kind of taking stock of our pod and the show community to this point, like of this kind of, you know, one third mark of the first season or something like that. Mm hmm. All right. Well, uh, I almost called you candy. <laughs> Thanks. It's Halloween. We, candy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, paging Dr. Freud. Um, no, well, Sandy, thanks for being here. Thanks again for your insights. Love it. Another great show. Um, I mean, this particular episode, I don't know if our mm -hmm. pod was great today, but at least the, I'm another, enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> another great episode. Introduction to, to statistics to statistics rather. And as I said, we'll be back soon with sort of a um, taking the temperature of the room and just reflecting on the show, the series that rather community up to this point. So thanks everybody for listening. Sandy, thanks again for the time. Thanks for being here and thanks for your insights. Our theme music is Happy Dance by Cedric Galke. Please subscribe to Streets Behind wherever you get your podcasts.